0: All right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna walk you through a guided meditation before we do the message. So you're welcome to participate or not participate. Uh, whatever you choose to do, I would encourage you, obviously, to give it a try, see what happens. You know, I was taught if you do guided meditation early on, early on, that you would get a demon. Um, so I decided to try it. And I don't, I don't think I'm demonized yet. I know there's people out there that would disagree, but they don't really know me. So what I want you to do is put your feet flat, flat on the floor. Don't have your legs crossed. Um, your posture is important. It really is. Try to keep your back straight. And don't have your hands touching. Put them um, on your thighs there. It's important to not have them. Any part of your body, right or left, Uh, crossing over. Got it? And then I want you to close your eyes and I want you to just take about three deep breaths and as you're taking those deep breaths I want you to just release physical stress and tension that you might be feeling. So you're just taking... Okay, and then I want you to take three more breaths at least and release mental and emotional stress. We talked about the seven energy centers, three above and three beneath last week and one in your heart. So what I want you to do is imagine... Christ above you, just above you. You can see Jesus or you can just see a bright light that represents Christ who is the light of the world. Very bright. And, and even if you are seeing the figure of Jesus, I want you to see pouring forth from him a very bright white light just above your head. And then I want you to, with your intention, open if you will, with your intention and your imagination, open up the top of your head and begin to draw light with every inhale. And bring that light and let it rest right in your heart. So as you inhale, you're drawing down that brilliant white light of Christ, drawing it into your heart and letting it rest there. With every inhale. And as that light is coming in, it's passing through the middle of your forehead, which represents your intuition, spiritual gifts, spiritual sight. Through your throat, which represents truth. So you're bringing the love and the light and the life of Christ into your mind. Activating your intuition and your spiritual gifts. Bringing his light into your truth, into your voice, your ability to speak. And communicate who you are, what you believe, what you think. And finally down into your heart. And letting it rest there with every inhale. Good. Good. Now I want you to become mindful of the lower part of your back, the base of your spine, which represents your need for survival, security. Next one, just a little bit below, just an inch or two below the belly button, representing our pursuits and need for pleasure. The solar plexus representing our need for power and influence. And those are also energy centers, so they have a light of their own, if you will. So what I want you to begin to imagine now is that on every exhale, you're pushing that energy up, all the way up, into your heart. So you're inhaling and as you're exhaling, pushing, as you push the air out, you're pushing that energy up the base of your spine into your heart to meet that light from Christ that you've drawn down into yourself. So you inhale and then you exhale. And as you exhale, you're pushing that energy through those centers Need for survival, need for pleasure, need for power, and it's residing comfortably inside the center of your heart. Now I want you to coordinate your breath so that on the inhale, you're drawing that light from Christ in above, and bringing it into your heart. And as you exhale, you're pushing the energy up your spine. And it's resting in your heart, inhaling the light of Christ, exhaling and bringing that energy up so that on every inhale, you're bringing energy down into your heart. And on every exhale, you're pushing energy up into your heart so that your entire being Is becoming impacted by the light of Christ and your entire being is coming into harmony and balance and synchronization. Everything abiding in your heart. Just a few more breaths, breathing in that bright white light down the top of your head, through the center of your forehead, down Past your voice, resting in your heart, radiant white light. And then as you exhale, pushing energy up from the base of your spine, past your belly button, past your solar plexus, into your heart. Good. For most of us, our sense of our mind and our consciousness resides in our head because that's where all our senses come in. It's where we see, it's where we hear, smell, taste. I want you to do this by your intention and by your imagination, I want you to imagine that center of consciousness as a point of light inside your brain. <laughs> this is your light, this is your consciousness. Imagining it as a center or a point of light inside the center of your brain and allowing it to move now. Allowing it to move down, down, down so that your mind, your consciousness, your awareness becomes centered in your heart. So all the higher energies of who you are in Christ, all the lower energies of who you are as a human being, and your awareness, all centering inside your heart. Whatever you experience is okay. If you start to have feelings, don't judge them. They may be pleasant or unpleasant. It doesn't matter. Just allow them to be there. From this place, you begin to host the manifest presence of God. That in the Hebrew is known as the Shekinah the manifest glory of God. Shekinah in Hebrew is actually the feminine, the divine feminine aspects of God. And from that place in your heart, you can surrender fully and completely to the love of Christ, to the wisdom of God, to the will of God, giving yourself, Totally and completely. Giving up your struggles. Giving up your ideas. Knowing that you are perfectly fine the way you are. You're totally accepted and loved. There is nothing about you that needs to change. And when you get in that place you can make affirmations to yourself is very powerful. You can communicate with yourself things that you want to change. I'm going to say, since it's St. Patrick's Day, I'm going to say as an affirmation the prayer of St. Patrick. And as I say the words out loud, I want you to repeat them to yourself silently and internally, planting them like a seed inside your heart. Christ be with me. Christ within me. Christ behind me. Christ before me. Christ beside me. Christ to win me. Christ to comfort and restore me. Christ beneath me. Christ above me. Christ in quiet. Christ in danger. Christ in the hearts of all that love me. Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. Just let the power of those words Settle down inside your heart. And I want you to become aware of your breathing again. Not drawing energy or moving energy anymore, but just your physical breathing. Just notice the breath coming in through your nose or mouth, however you're breathing. Notice the temperature of it. Notice the feel of it. Notice the pace of your breathing. Feel yourself sitting in the chair. Take your hands that are on your thighs and begin to rub your thighs, just keeping your eyes closed, but rubbing your thighs. Take your feet and kind of rub them on the floor with your eyes closed. And then gently, very slowly, start to open your eyes. You can open them once, close them again. Open them up again, but you're bringing yourself very gently back into the room, back into this physical space. Stretch, yawn, move around a little bit, getting yourself centered back, physical awareness, outer awareness, if you will. And when you're ready, if you'd stand up with me, we'll pray and then we'll get into the message today. How is that? So that's something you can take home and practice. Um, we'll put it up on our uh, YouTube page. So if you can't remember it, you can go to the YouTube page and just follow along with it. Um, It's something that will really help you. All right. How's everybody feeling? Good? Rub your hands together like this. Put them up like this. (laughs) Just get that blood flowing. Get you back in the room so you don't fall asleep on me when I'm trying to teach, right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful presence and grace. Thank you for your favor upon each person that's here, each person that's watching, each person that's listening. I pray the power and the love and the grace of the Holy Spirit would be upon each of us, that you would lead us and guide us into all truth. Holy Spirit, we accept you as teacher and guide. Lord, I pray that you will anoint me and help me to bring forth words of truth and grace and power that will destroy traditions and bring freedom. In Jesus' name. And if you can agree with that, just say Amen. You be seated. So I want to talk about something um, that I've been meaning to get to. Anyway, but I want to talk about can you trust your own heart? I've been at this a long time, and most of what I'm teaching now is not really that new to me. Most of it is stuff that I've I've believed or taught in some form and tried to work out in my own life for sure um, a lot of it some of it for over 20 years now um, I haven't always been uh, vocal about it but invariably when you start doing stuff with the heart and telling people to get into their heart I don't know what it is about Christian circles. I think it's because we've been trained to think so negatively about humanity and about the human being, which is really ironic because we are taught in the very beginning of our scriptures that man is made in the image and the likeness of God. But somewhere along the way, we came to believe that that was completely lost or completely, totally corrupted by original sin or whatever the case may be. And so it's almost as though if you start telling people to get in touch with their desires, get in touch with their authentic voice, get in touch with their heart... Uh, that invariably there are voices, particularly Christian voices, that come along and say, no, 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 your emotions will mislead you, your desires will mislead you, because they automatically assume that your desires must be evil and wicked, and everything about you as a human being must be uh, d- distorted and corrupted, or whatever the case may be, and you certainly cannot trust the voice of your own heart, and, oh, no, 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 you don't want to be following or led by that, and then they'll usually add something that sounds really wise and really good. You want to be led by the Spirit. Problem is they don't tell you how to be led. <laughs> by the spirit and so invariably what they do is come back to what Christians like to call the bible um, what they like to call the word of god and you've got to be led by the word of god so something outside of you has to uh, keep you balanced and whatever but here's our problem guys if we're really honest everybody there's so many different interpretations and understandings and i don't know about you but when i first started reading the bible i would read some of the stuff that paul wrote you, do, do you realize that the apostle peter who walked with jesus in one of his letters, he said, the stuff that Paul wrote is hard to understand. Now here's a guy who could actually ask the master questions. One of the twelve that was chosen. His name's written according to the revelation and the foundation of the city. And he says, when I read Paul, I get confused. So really, is it really, really smart then of us to say, oh, just read, just read what the New Testament says and you'll be good. So what we don't realize is that most of us have been given colored glasses through which we we see all that stuff anyway. So is that really, really, when you think about all the different interpretations and all the arguments, oh, if you don't believe me, there's there's a, a Christian publisher out there that has published a series of books called The Four Views Of. And you've got everything under the sun. Four views of the atonement, four views of hell, four views of the scripture, four views of the rapture, four views of... And all these people claim to use the Bible as their guide. So even if the Bible were inerrant, the Word of God, you know, this is it, it's still difficult for us to all understand and come to an agreement on. And how do you know your version of truth is the right version of truth? So when you really begin to think about these people who want to make you scared of yourself, who want to say, you can't trust yourself, Well, if I can't trust myself, how can I trust myself to interpret the Bible correctly? Oh, but the Holy Spirit helps you. Well, how does that work? See, they often tell you the what, but they don't tell you the how. And so someone like me comes along and starts saying, you need to follow your heart. You need to get into your heart. And invariably, people hear that and they go, oh. So. If you'll bear with me, and and invariably people come back and say, Oh, but the Bible says the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? Anybody ever come across that? So if you'll allow me, I'm glad it's a little bit smaller group today because I'm going to take you through a seminary class this morning. I hope that's okay. It'll be a practical seminary class. It'll it'll be the things that a lot of pastors and preachers know, but they're afraid to tell you. And if I can be truly honest with you, it's things that a lot of pastors and preachers and leaders have absolutely no idea about. That they're totally ignorant of. In fact, you'll walk out of here today, I guarantee it, with more knowledge about the Bible than a lot of pastors in this city. Or even than a lot of people that like to... You don't know about this, but that like to challenge me on Facebook. <laughs> My favorite quotes right now is comes from Carl Jung, and I know there's people out there say, "Oh, you're going to hell just for reading Carl Jung." But Carl Jung, a preeminent psych- psychologist, and he said this, he said, "Certainty is the sign of an uncultivated mind." Because <laughs> we used to be, this is God 's word, right?" This is God's Word. God said it. I believe it. That settles it, right? But we don't think about how does that actually work? Like how did God actually get this to us? Like did He Xerox copies from heaven and send it down to Zondervan Press so they could print the Bibles? We don't really know. And when you begin to discover some things, it really becomes interesting. All right? After a while, you need to realize that there's a different guidance system. And what I'm arguing for is that the gospel is not really about a historical person or a historical event. I'm not denying the reality of Jesus. I'm not denying the reality of the crucifixion or the resurrection. I'm not denying any of that. I'm just saying that what the Scriptures are pointing to, what Paul specifically is pointing to, is a present reality that's alive in your heart that you can experience and know for yourself. And that if Christ dwells in your heart, like Paul states and like the Scripture states over and over again, then you don't need to look outside yourself to find teaching or to find truth or to find guidance. In fact, the best place to become a disciple of Christ is to find Christ within your own heart. And follow that. But, if the heart is deceitful and wicked, eh, who knows, right? So let's take a look. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. Oh, I, I wanna, I wanna read this to you out of the King James version first. I wanted to have a couple different versions of it. So let me, let me read it to you out of the New King James first. Alright? Where is that? Jeremiah 17, verse 9. Says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So the heart is deceitful above all things. There's nothing else that lies more than the heart. And it's desperately, not just wicked, (laughs) not just a little mean once in a while, desperately wicked. Or look at it this way. The heart is more deceitful than all else. We got a real problem. The heart is deceitful more than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Well, if you're gonna take that verse and lay it out there, basically everything I just said about getting in your heart and all that stuff is something not only that, that is, is, is not true, it's dangerous. It's bad advice. You're going to be lied to. You're going to be deceived. Oh, all that desperate wickedness that we know is locked up inside you that you've been suppressing all those years is finally going to come out. It's going to be like opening up Pandora's box. Right? Let's break it down in the original language. Let's do that first. All right? Now, the word for deceit is the Hebrew word that means... The heel of the foot. <laughs> that sounds like deceitful, doesn't it? it? means the heel of the foot. And the word that's translated desperately wicked or translated incurably sick is the Hebrew word anush. Now, the King James, New King James, translates it desperately wicked, which has a moral sense. But it's important to know That Anush is never translated anywhere else in the Bible in a moral sense, only in Jeremiah 17 verse 9. So here you have a verse, you have a word that's in Hebrew that's translated nowhere else as desperately wicked. But that's how it gets translated. But let's deal with this first one, deceitful. There is actually a Hebrew word for lying and there is a Hebrew word for deceitful. And there is a Hebrew word for the heel of the foot. This word is not the word that traditionally would be used for lying or deceit. This is the word that's used for the heel of the foot. So how in the world do translators get from the heel of the foot to the word deceitful? Any ideas? Because somewhere in the Bible, there's a guy who there's a story about who has a twin brother. And he's wrestling with his twin in the womb, and he's grasping at the heel. And the older brother comes out first, and his name is Esau. And the second twin comes out, grasping the foot of the heel, and his name is Jacob. And somewhere in the story, Jacob lied. So of course, if the prophet who we believe is being inspired by the Holy Spirit, is using the term heal, well, of course he must be talking about Jacob. Of course he must. And if he's talking about Jacob, of course he must be talking about the one incident or two incidents in his life where he lied. So if the heel equals Jacob and Jacob equals lying, then the word the heal equals lying. That sounds good to me. Let's write it in like that. Guys, does that make sense to you at all? I mean, you could see the logical leaps, but... Why do you have to associate the heel with Jacob to begin with? Why? Isn't the heel sort of the foundation upon which you stand? Just a thought. Isn't it what you rely on to keep you up and hold you upright? How come we couldn't use a meaning that we associate with the heel that actually associates with the heel? No, no, no. It's gotta, we're, it's gotta be Jacob. And the Bible says about Jacob, this is, see this is what I don't get. Everybody's down on Jacob. Everybody, Jacob's a liar, all this stuff. When there's several places in the scripture it says, God himself says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, but for some reason we act like Jacob was the bad guy in the story. But God says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. So there's a whole big story of Jacob's life. I mean, how would you like? I mean, it seems like we're the only group of people that we label people by their mistakes, and then there they are. Think about it. Think about what we do to people in the Bible. We're going to owe all kinds of people uh, apologies when we get to heaven, uh, starting with doubting Thomas. One story, right? I mean, how come we don't call Peter denying Peter? Or Paul, the Pharisee Paul. But Jacob's one of the ones we're really going to have to apologize to because we've even said the name Jacob means deceiver. You could even look up in some of your Bible dictionaries the word Jacob means deceiver. It does not mean deceiver. It means one who grabs the heel. means one who supplants. It's actually a positive thing when you think about it because it, it's one who overcomes. It's one who, see, the, in actuality, God chose Jacob to have all the rights and blessings of the firstborn, but Esau got in his way and got out first. And so all Jacob's doing when he's grasping at the heel is trying to remove the obstacle to his destiny to become who God chose him to become from before the foundation of the world. And so in that sense, Jacob is a supplanter or an overcomer and it has a very positive meaning. So we just jump to deceitful. Interesting, huh? Now let's come back to this uh, Anush. Nowhere in the Bible is it translated in a moral sense. So you can just throw out desperately wicked. Just toss it out. Only place in the Bible it gets translated that way. What about incurably sick? Well, here's one place it's translated... Psalm 69 verse 20 says, reproach has broken my heart and I am full of heaviness. The word heaviness there, anush. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was no one and for comfort, but I found no one. Heaviness can mean, it can mean that the heart is the place of heaviness or the place of distress, anush. Can also mean fragile. Can also mean tender or soft. Susceptible to hurt and pain. It doesn't mean rotten to the core like incurably sick. If it's incurably sick, God has a real problem. (laughs) Because He can't fix it. (laughs) Now here's where we're going to go a little bit to, to Bible school. Seminary class. Let's suppose, let me back up from this for a minute. Let's suppose that you are tasked with translating into English, creating a Bible into English that is the inspired Word of God. There's a difference, by the way, between inerrant... You you talk about the Bible being inerrant, inerrancy. There's a difference between inerrancy and inspiration. Paul said all Scripture is inspired by God. A bunch of preachers got together... 200 of them in the 1970s, and signed the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy as a reaction to modern scientific findings. Inspiration means that it contains the breath of God in it. Inspiration is both a divine and human work. Just like someone who's inspired an artist does a painting, but they're inspired. What are they saying? They're saying, something came over me that wasn't me, but it was still me that did the painting. When you say something inspires you, what do you mean? The word inspiration means breath came into me. So something something outside of me came into me and lifted me, but it was still me. The Bible says of itself that it is written by men, because Peter said, Scripture, as holy men of old wrote, who were moved by the Holy Spirit. So the people who actually, let's say the people who actually wrote the Scriptures are writing under the movement of the Spirit, but they're writing in a dead language. They're writing, in some cases, four or five thousand years ago. Whatever. Whatever. And you come along as a Bible translator, and it's your task to make sure that the Word of God, because I believe it, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, somehow gets communicated to your culture and your people in your time period. Well, what do you have to do? Well, obviously you've got to find that original writing, right? Or at least a copy of the original writing, right? Okay, first problem, there's none around. Oldest copies you can find are hundreds of years removed from when the person wrote. That's your first problem. Second problem is you've got about three or four different languages to deal with. Because you have a Hebrew translation copy. You have an Aramaic translation copy. You have a Greek translation. You have a Syriac translation. So which language do you use? Well, obviously you use the one that they actually spoke, but which one did they speak? Well, it was Hebrew, really? Because they're coming out of Babylonian captivity, and so one of the books that you say was inspired says they lost their language while they were in Babylonian captivity, and they came out speaking Aramaic. Well, then it's Aramaic. Oh, yeah, but sometime during that time period, Alexander the Great conquered the world, and he made common Greek, of Greek, could we call it. He made it the common language of the day. So, well then it, so which is it? Is it the Hebrew that they originally spoke and forgot? Is it the Aramaic that they came out speaking? Or is it the of Greek that they were forced to speak because they were part of the Greco-Roman world? And guess what? They don't all say the same thing. See, it'd be, be easy if, if the Aramaic and the Hebrew and the Greek all agree, but they don't. And then you have to account for errors. I'm sorry, but when people tell you, well, you know, you can't trust the scripture because it's been copied by man so many different times and there's so many errors, they kind of know what they're talking about. Hate to disappoint you. Early Christians especially were not particularly wealthy and people weren't that literate. So most of the people that were hired to copy the scriptures, it would take them years to copy, and most of them that did it couldn't read the language. So they would copy the characters. And when you look at all the different manuscripts, there's as much as there's about, what was the number? About 2,400 discrepancies in the New Testament alone. How do you know which one to use? Y'all are looking at me like I took away your Lord and... You don't know where I laid him. Fortunately, now the Hebrews did a much better job, actually, preserving the what we call the Old Testament scriptures. Don't have as many problems there. But let's we still have some problems now. What did Jeremiah seventeen nine? So let me ask this question: When Jesus was reading the scriptures, and when Paul was reading the scriptures? And when John and Peter were reading the scriptures, what scriptures were they reading? Do you even know? Most people don't even know. Sometimes if you have a good study Bible, it'll reference a thing called the Septuagint. Really just say with me, Septuagint. Is this okay? It is going to set you free, I promise. Just stay with me to the end. Septuagint means the translation of the 70 interpreters. Now here's what the story is. The story is that the Greeks wanted a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures into their own language. And they brought together 70 of the wisest elders and teachers and scribes of Israel at the time. And they put them in separate Areas They didn't let them talk or confer and they translated the scripture from the Hebrew into the Greek and when they brought all 70 copies back together they matched perfectly. Now remember if you're going to translate today nobody the, in Greece they don't speak Koine Greek today any more than you speak King James English. You don't speak King James English because you're about four what four centuries removed from King James English. So your language has evolved. Imagine being thousands of years removed from a language. Ah, but see, here you have people who actually spoke the Greek language of the day, actually knew the Hebrew of the day, and they're translating one from the other. Which do you think is going to be more trustworthy? Come on, saints, this isn't isn't rocket science. I was just presenting the problems to you, now I'm giving you solutions wasn't saying there wasn't answers to all these problems when you have all these errors. I'm just saying it's not as simple as you think. It wasn't Xerox down through the ages to make sure God got his point across. Are you breathing? Okay. Here's how the Septuagint translates it. They translate that first word in Jeremiah 7.19 where we have deceitful, the heel. (laughs) They translate it as Deep. Now, don't ask me how they get from the heel to deep, but whatever. And they translate the second word to a Greek word that means a human. So in the Septuagint, remember, this is the Bible that Jesus read. This is the Bible that the apostles read. Here's what it said. The heart is deep beyond all things, and it is the man who can know him. The heart is deep beyond all things, and it is the man who can know him. See, so when you start telling people, follow your heart, and these other folk over here get all worked up about it and say, oh, no, you can't do that, the heart's deceitful." What they think you're talking about is just your conditioned emotions, your conditioned thoughts and feelings, your whims. When I'm talking about the heart, I'm not talking about that. When the Bible talks about the heart, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the very depth and core and center of your being and who you are in the image of God. And it is a place that is very deep. But if you never explore that space within yourself, you'll never find the depths that are there. You have to take off the no trespassing signs that people put. Out of their own fear and insecurities. Because of their own unfinished business and maybe their own wicked desires and deceit. And they put it on you. The first time this verse is ever translated to convey a morally negative idea is in the third century after Christ. First time it's ever translated. It's in the third century after Christ. Now he said, Aaron, wait, wait a minute. You said they didn't have manuscripts. But we do have people who quote from the manuscripts. You realize when they're putting your Bible together, oftentimes what they're doing is looking at writers who quoted that we still have older copies of, their writings, and they're piecing it together that way. It's quite a complex process, actually, to get you your Bible. It's one of the reasons we should treasure it. the first time it's ever translated to convey a morally negative idea is the third century after Christ. So you have to ask yourself, why three centuries later do they introduce that? Come back to that in a second. Now, here's the interesting thing. Even though when the, when the biblical writers are quoting from the Old Testament in the New Testament, they're using the Septuagint. But your Bibles today, none of them, None of them include a Septuagint translation into English. Another footnote or thing that doesn't make sense sometimes is you'll see a footnote and it says, uh, it'll talk about the Masoretic text. You ever seen that when you're going across stuff? What's the Masoretic text? The Masoretic text is a strictly rabbinic Jewish post-Jesus Christ translation of the Old Testament. The Masoretic text is trusted because it has fewer discrepancies because the Jewish translators, or I'm sorry, copiers, not translators, copiers, as they were copying it had a very meticulous method for making sure that the copies were exact. So it's easier to deal with because you don't have as many discrepancies. Got it? But he's tracking with me. The Mesoretic text wasn't began until the 6th century, and it was finished in the 10th century. 600 years after Jesus, 600 years after Paul, Jews who had not converted to Christianity, who did not believe in Jesus, and by evangelicals' own theology, not saying necessarily what I believe, But by the theology that we're taught, they couldn't have had the Holy Spirit to lead them and guide them into all truth. Translating the Bible over four centuries, and they finish it in the 10th century. And that's where you get your translation of Jeremiah. That's where you get the verse in Jeremiah 17.9 that tells you that your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. Not from the Septuagint. Now, why would three centuries later they introduce a negative concept? I have a theory. This is just a theory. Everybody say this is Aaron's theory. It's not a fact. Look at this. Some of the earliest writings we have by a Christian is person by this bishop, the Bishop of Lyons named Irenaeus. Now, tradition holds that Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John the Apostle. Got it? Truth is, Polycarp heard may may have heard John the Apostle speak, and Polycarp and Irenaeus were both from the same town. So, but anyway, tradition makes the leap that John discipled Polycarp, and Polycarp discipled Irenaeus. But the actual historical proof there is pretty flimsy. But Regardless, he's pretty close to the original time period. Yes? His writings are some of the earliest church writings we have, and he uses the verse in Jeremiah seventeen nine as a messianic prophecy and proof that the Jews did not recognize that Jesus was the Messiah. The heart is deep, and it is a, it is the man who can know him or who can recognize him. And so in his writings... He's saying that's a prophecy about Christ and the fact that the Jewish people did not recognize him as Christ. And it was repeated as a, if you will, Christian apologetic down through the centuries. So doesn't it make sense that the group that they're attacking might deal with that verse a little bit differently and say, no, this doesn't mean this, this means something else, particularly because... In those first few centuries, the Christians were all mystics. They weren't telling you to go home and read your Bible. They were telling you the presence of Christ dwelled in your heart, and you could find it in your heart. Are you all breathing all right? All right, let's look at this. It's not moving for me for some reason. Let's put it in its context. Let's forget. Let's assume the translation. Let's just put it in its context. Jeremiah 17 verse 1 says this. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with the point of a diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart. Not on the tablet of everybody's heart, but on the tablet of their heart. Right? Where's the sin written? On the tablet of the heart, right? Got it? Next part. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. So even if that verse does mean desperately wicked and deceitful, in its context, it's talking about a people whose heart has already departed from the Lord and whose heart their sin is engraved. Not talking about every human being born. (laughs) But let's keep working with it. Then he goes on, in verse 7, notice all these verses come before verse 9, right? Then he goes on in verse 7 and he says this, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord. <laughs> so the passage says the sin is recorded in the heart of Judah, but the passage also differentiates between those who trust in man and whose heart is barred from the Lord and those who trust in the Lord, therefore their heart is still with the Lord. He's distinguishing. You see it? Then let's just suppose this translation is correct. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. So here's what he's saying in the context. He's saying there is a group over here that trusts in man. There's a group over here that trusts in the Lord. And I search the heart to find out which one is which. What is the point of God searching the heart if the heart is desperately wicked and incurably sick and deceitful? Because he would know. I mean, it's like searching the tabloids for news. Two of you got it. What's the point of God searching the heart if everything in the heart is a lie? It's deceitful above all. You see it? It's desperately wicked. Well, God knows that. Why is He looking at your heart? (laughs) To find out who you are. How could He even? You're Tom Cruise with your alien baby. Or Hillary Clinton or whatever. (laughs) Does, Does that even make sense? But what if you translate it the way the Septuagint translates it? The heart is deep beyond all things and is the man and who can know him. I, the Lord, search the heart even to give to every man according to his ways. See, we have taught people forever that God just looks at behavior. The whole thing Jesus is saying, He doesn't just... God's not looking at behavior. God is looking, God does not see as a man sees. God sees what's the heart. And a man cannot see what's in another person's heart. Therefore, we often, if not always, judge someone in error. Because we judge by behavior. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. We love 1 Corinthians 13. We know 1 Corinthians 13. We read it at wedding ceremonies for crying out loud. Right? It's the love chapter. But what does he say? He says, you can have all knowledge, but if you don't have love, it doesn't profit. So you can have faith that can move mountains, but if you don't have love, it doesn't profit. You can sell all you have to the poor, but if you don't have love, it profits you nothing. You can give yourself to be burned, but if you don't have love, it profits you nothing. You can speak in tongues, but if you don't have love, you're a banging gong and a tinkling cymbal. What's he saying? You can have all the right behaviors, but if it's not originating in the heart from a place of love, it means nothing. Because the heart is deep, and the heart reflects who the person really is, not their behaviors. And the only one who can really search and know the heart and give to each one according to justice is the Lord you see it let's look at some other things the Bible says if the heart is deceitful and wicked how do you reconcile these other verses like that's one verse that's the only verse that tells you your heart is deceitful and wicked and that's the one they would throw at you (coughs) and ignore all the other verses so let's look at a few Nathan said to David, do all that is in your heart and God is with you. Well, how in the world could he tell him to do all that is in his heart? He's telling him to do desperately wicked stuff. You come out as a preacher and say, follow your heart. Do what's in your heart. God will be with you. Oh, no, brother, you can't have people going there. They've got to follow the Word. Well, there it is in the Word. <coughs> My defense is of God who saves the upright in heart. Well, how could they be upright in their heart? Their heart is incurably sick. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. The Lord gives me counsel and my heart. Oh, no, 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 no. It's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. You shouldn't be listening to that. I'm going to write a blog. I'm going to comment on your Facebook post. No, 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 no. That can't be right. May He grant you according to your heart's desire (laughs) and fulfill all your purpose. See, where's the negative slant towards humanity? Where's the, oh, no, 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 no. We can't trust the desires of our hearts. Oh, no, we better not have any purpose over here other than the purpose. I just want what the Lord wants, brother. I just want the Lord to bless me. I just want the will of the Lord. I just want to give all the glory to Jesus. That's religious nonsense. It is. May He grant you according to your heart's desire. Not if it's deceitful. Not if it's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Some will say, well, the heathen's heart can't be trusted. This is my favorite. I saw one blog that said this. The heathen heart can't be trusted, but if you've made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, you've been born again, and your heart has been changed from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, therefore you can trust your heart. And this is written, uh, I don't know, uh, at least several centuries, if not millennia, uh, before Jesus. Before Jesus. Before your heart could be trusted when it's deceitful and wicked and incurably sick. Better scratch that verse out. Oh, but wait a minute, the Bible's without error. Oh, at least it's inspired. Oh, what do I do? <laughs> Alright. How about how Jeremiah uses the verse himself? Look at what he says here. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your deceitful above all things a desperately wicked heart. Is that what he's encouraging you to do? Or how about this one? But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my. Let's give you one from the New Testament. Paul is talking about the righteousness which is of behavior, the law, and the righteousness which is of faith, which comes from the heart. Yes? And he says, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, the man who does these things shall live by them. That's your behavior. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your hearts who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. Where is the word? Is it here? Is it here? Where is it? Even in your heart and in your mouth. So I'm telling you, when you understand the gospel correctly, when you understand the gospel the way Paul preached it, when you understand the teachings of Jesus, they are continually pointing you not to a historical event or a historical person that you have no way of verifying with your own experience, but instead they are pointing you continually to what's already alive inside your own heart. What did Paul preach among the Gentiles? The unsearchable riches of Christ. What was the unsearchable riches of Christ? Christ in you, the hope of glory. That all may come to know the fellowship of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What's he say in Ephesians? That you were raised with Christ. He's not pointing you to a historical event of the resurrection. He's pointing you to a resurrection that's already happened inside of you. i say it again. Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, they asked him when the kingdom of God would come. He said, the kingdom of God does not come by observation or, if you will, by eyewitness testimony that's been passed down. The kingdom of God is within you. So the whole point is, uh, the whole point of this message was to hopefully banish that thing from your subconscious that says your heart's wicked, your heart's incurably sick, you can't trust it, you can't, it's a lie. If you want to know where the divine guidance system is for your life, it's not in your head. If you want to know how to experience Christ, it's not in your head and just memorizing facts. If you want to know how to know the love of Christ, you know it by experience, not because you believe it and you mentally ascend to the fact that, well, God loves me. I mean, I feel like a piece of trash. I feel guilty. I feel ashamed. I feel like I'm not doing enough. I feel like I don't measure up. I feel anxious. I'm I'm a sinner. Just, I'm, I'm terrible. But Oh, but God loves me. God loves me so much he had to kill Jesus in order to love me. where you can find the eternal, infinite presence of Christ dwelling already in the sanctuary of your own heart. And from that place, begin to experience the reality of total, unconditional love and life and presence and power. Because it's not about memorizing facts or creedal statements, or saying a prayer correctly. It's about you connecting with the living reality of the eternally present moment, Christ, that is dwelling within you every moment of your life. That's what the gospel is supposed to lead you into. Into that. And that will change your life. That will set you free. That will empower you and give you hope and plug you into a reality that you don't just have to believe, but a reality that you can experience. Not one that you trust, one that you know. Not one that you believe because somebody else told you, but one that you know because you've experienced the reality of it for yourself. One can be taken away from you. The other can never be taken away from you. Which is why Paul could say, and this is real close, I am persuaded that neither life, nor death, nor angel, nor demon, nor principality, nor tribulation, nor hardship, nor anything in all creation is able to separate you from the love of Christ. Why? Because it's always there in you. you. (laughs) You know, in India they say namaste. You know what that means? Namaste means the divine in me Seize the divine in you. And I honor you. I like that. Namaste. God bless you. Have a great day.